Scripture readings today, if you want to follow along, Old Testament, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who in anguish, in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time he made he has made glorious the way of the sea, and the land beyond Jordan, Galilee, and the nations. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. For this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And uh, for our New Testament reading. It is Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph. Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much, Lord, for allowing us to be in your house today. And Father, we thank you for this season, Lord, as we celebrate the birth of your son. God, just uh, help us to realize that each and every day is a blessing that you give us, and to never take that for granted. Father, forgive us where we fail you and help us, Lord, to always strive to draw closer to you. These things we ask in your holy name. Amen. 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 Sweet little Jesus, sweet little Jesus, sweet little Jesus. In a
Christmas and had an opportunity <laughs> to let you hear it too. Had you heard that before? Sweet little Jesus boy. That was Lorna Harris, if you're wondering who was singing that. And uh, just absolutely beautiful. Well, let's, uh, let's just take a moment and uh, bow our hearts before the Lord and then uh, we'll go to the scriptures together. Father, it is the desire of our heart that the world would come and see what you have done in sending your Son into the world to be born in a stable and to be laid in a manger, a feeding trough, the, the God of the universe in human flesh so treated, so humbled himself and came to us to bring us life that will never end, the forgiveness of our sins and peace with our God. What a miracle. Thank you that we can be together in this time of the year to pause and to remember and to give thanks and praise. Thank you for your extravagant mercy 
And God, thank You for Your indescribable gift, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that if there might be one among us today, just one person that doesn't know Him, that is Savior-less, we pray that they would not leave in the same dread condition. We pray that as the Word of God is preached today, that the Spirit of God will operate on the heart of man and Christ will become precious to that heart. Lord, we are powerless apart from the Spirit and His work as we preach. So please, Lord, help me to preach. Help us to listen and to glorify Christ. We pray it in His holy name. Amen. My title this morning is All Boasting Excluded Except in the Lord. And my text is 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. As you're locating 1 Corinthians 1, let me do just a brief glance ahead. Next Sunday is Christmas Eve, and I am going to be preaching on the Magi, King Herod, and King Jesus. So we will depart from our uh, First Corinthians series next Sunday, and then the following Sunday is New Year's Eve, and that is our traditional Bible reading Sunday, which means we preach from the Bible about the Bible. Every year we do this. And then we also distribute a new Bible reading plan. So for 2024, we'll have a Bible reading plan. If you've been thinking about, you know, I need to begin to regularly read the Bible, but I really don't know where to start. Maybe I started in Genesis and I plowed into Leviticus and uh, the the train came off the track right there. Well, we're going to give you a plan that might help that somewhat. So uh, that'll be on New Year's Eve. And then we will, Lord willing, or DV... As my Wednesday night group knows, uh, we will come back to 1 Corinthians in January. Today we're at 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31. And notice how, again, I just uh, stand amazed at the timing of the Lord. Due to the schedule, we're able to complete chapter 1 today and then have our time for Christmas and the new year and so forth. So let's read 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. I'm reading again from the LSB. If you would like to, uh, on an electronic device, tap over to that. You can, in your hard copy of the Bible, turn to the page, or on your device, tap to the screen. Something the Apostle Paul never had to say, by the way, as he directed people to the Scriptures. Tap to the screen. Here we go. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, 
And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not. So that he may abolish the things that are. So that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. This is God's word. All boasting excluded except in the Lord. Now, you've no doubt noticed that we live in a very proud and braggadocious age. Not that our age is uh, the only age that's been proud and braggadocious, but certainly we uh, seem to have set a new standard for such things. Uh, egregiously so. I think maybe it's most glaring in professional sports. And by the way, I am so glad today that my basketball coach from Newmarket Elementary, Coach Burns, is here with us today. And I would be saying this. Time out, and let me just say the best basketball coach I ever played for man could have coached college basketball. But I think this pride and braggadocio that we uh, see so much today is most glaring in professional sports. And I say that because when you compare the humility of earlier athletes uh, like Jesse Owens or um, Walter Payton coming up generations, uh, compare them with People like LeBron James or uh, James Harden. Tony Medlin was the longtime equipment manager for the Chicago Bears. And in that role, you can understand, he got a unique behind-the-scenes look at the personalities of the players. And he described Walter Payton as, quote, probably the most humble celebrity player I'd ever seen, end quote. And yet even for sweetness, that's what they called Peyton, as you'll remember, pride was a problem because it was no secret that above all else, he wanted to be known as the greatest running back of all time. And if you've ever seen any highlights of Walter Peyton, you know he may just have been the greatest that ever played that position. I know he was incredible. If he'd had an offensive line... Uh, most of those years would have been beyond phenomenal. The truth is pride is a problem. And it's a problem not just for Peyton. It's a problem for all of us. We wrestle, don't we, with pride of all sins. It seems this sin is the sin that is most deeply embedded in the heart of man. Pride. As Philpott wrote more than a century and a half ago, where lust may have no power, covetousness, no dominion, and anger, no sway. 
There, down, down, in the inmost depths, heaving and boiling like lava in the crater of a volcano, works that master sin, that sin of sins, pride. And nowhere does pride manifest itself more clearly than in the spiritual realm. That is, it manifests itself in how we think of ourselves in the presence, in the sight of a holy God. I did all of a three-minute search on Twitter, or uh, now it's called X, which I can't stand that. That's such... It's so cold and antiseptic, isn't it, X? But I did a three-minute search, and I found no shortage of people celebrating, lauding their own goodness. One woman calling herself a psychic medium and energy healer. Whatever that is. She said of herself, I'm a good person, and I mean well. I have made mistakes, but I never have an issue with looking at myself in the mirror and growing, and that's why I stay blessed. Another person said, I'm a good person who deserves things I want. And one more chimed in with this, I will never stop being a good person. I'm just changing who I'm good to. Then there was this one. I'm sick to the back of my teeth of people setting boundaries for me and acting like I'm the bad person when I'm only just sick of being treated like, there's a censored word I have to put there. She said, I'm censored, a good person, and I refuse to let people make me think otherwise. That is all. Now, of course, Proverbs 16.5 warns that everyone who is proud in heart, listen, is an abomination to Yahweh. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. In Isaiah 2.12, for Yahweh of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and high and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be made low. And Proverbs 29.23 says, point blank, a man's lofty pride will bring him low. And that's because, James 4.6, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But you see, the unrepentant proud will have zero problems sloughing off all these biblical warnings. And that's because, Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. I think Dan Phillips hits it right on the head when he says that there are basically two kinds of people in this world. Those who think they're smarter than God and those who are biblically faithful Christians. Those who think they're smarter than God refuse His Word, belittle His Word, twist and contradict His Word. But biblically faithful Christians accept God's Word, honor God's Word, and seek to keep God's Word, and therein they find true wisdom. 
And that's what Paul is driving at in the verses that we just read. When he says that all boasting is excluded except in the Lord. Now let's do a little bit of thinking and go back for just a moment and remember about the Corinthian church. What had they done? They had gotten themselves out on this dangerous spiritual ledge. And they had done this by, among other things, appealing to human wisdom. And consequently, they were dividing from one another because of their various appeals to human beings. They were quarreling. They were fighting with each other. They were like Hatfields and McCoys at Corinth. And they were saying ridiculous things like this. Verse 12, I am of Paul. And another group was saying, I of Apollos. And another, I of Cephas. And another, I of Christ. They had clearly forgotten what they were, what their standing was, what their condition was when God first called them to receive the gospel. And so what Paul does here is he reminds them what they were. He affectionately, now notice verse 26, the word brothers, there it is again. He says, hey now, family of God, remember just a few humbling facts. Remember that when God called you, and by the way, speaking of words that are there again, there's that one. Called, right? We've seen this word over and over. Verse 1, called. Verse 2, called. Verse 9, called. Verse 24, called. And now, here we are in verse 26. Consider your calling. What is that? Oh, that is when God authoritatively, effectively summoned you to faith in Christ. That's when the scales fell off your eyes and you saw the beauty of Jesus Christ, though you may have mocked and belittled Him before. But suddenly your eyes are opened and you see Christ and you become His. Consider your calling, brothers. Think on these things. Chew on this. Humble yourselves and own it. That there are, were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. He's saying you weren't a collection of elite intellectuals. You weren't an assembly of cultural influencers. You weren't jet setters, movers and shakers. No. Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that He may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. Professor Gary Shogren says that Paul speaks in embarrassing specifics of his Corinthian friends and invites them to think of what they were when they were called. His point is that if God really had regard for human categories of wisdom and strength, see, that's what they were fighting over. That's what they were dividing over. 
these human categories. They were elevating each other, certain ones over the other. If God really had regard for those categories, He certainly would have selected a better bunch of people for the church of Corinth. Paul's argument rests on his belief that God has chosen individuals and has called them to faith. And you'll notice he keeps using this refrain. You see it over and over in your Bible three times, right? In verses 27 and 28, what's the refrain? God has chosen. God has chosen. God has chosen. Did you see that in your Bible? Apart from this supposition, Paul's argument falls apart, for then a Corinthian could claim that his decision to believe the gospel was evidence of his superior discernment. But in fact, the makeup of the Corinthian church shows that the least discerning, the crudest, the poorest educated, the people from the most obscure families tended to end up believers. That's God's doing. Most of the members of the Corinthian church represented, verse 27, the foolish, weak, base. That word base means lowly. And as Paul calls them, the things that are not. What's he mean by that? He means the count for nothings. The, the kinds of people that no one would ever... You remember how when we were play, when we were kids on the playground, the, the, the kids that always got picked last? Maybe I'm talking to some of the last. We always got picked last in the games. These are the count for nothings in the eyes of the world. Most of the Corinthian church were count for nothings. But all the same, God had a sovereign purpose. His purpose was to shame those that the world considered wise and to shame those that the world considered strong. Which meant that when the Corinthians believed in Christ, they appeared in the eyes of the world around them foolish, weak, not wise and strong. But in truth, it was the world who was weak and foolish. Do you see that? God's taking what is in the eyes of man and He's turning it on its head. Pratt says, Paul did not use these unflattering descriptions of the Corinthians to belittle them, but to remind them that they had no basis for boasting. When the Corinthians first experienced the gospel in their lives, they did not feel superior to one another. They were not divided from one another. From God's perspective, nothing had changed between that time and the time Paul wrote this letter. The Corinthians still had no reason to boast, to divide, or to quarrel. And Paul's reminding him of that. And all of this, verse 29, so that no flesh... No person, no class of people, no human being may boast, glory, brag before God in the presence of God. An English lady of noble blood once told the great Methodist preacher John Wesley that she was saved by an M the letter M. 
When Wesley asked her to explain what she meant by that, she pointed him to 1 Corinthians one twenty six, which in the King James Version reads, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many noble, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God did not say not any noble are called, she explained, but not many noble. Were it not for that letter M, I would be lost. She was saved by an M. Not many. God did call wealthy, noble, intellectuals to himself. Christian history is littered with such persons. But in the main, just ordinary folks. The count for nothings. I'm so thankful to be a count for nothing. I mean it. I'll tell you, some of the most humble people I've ever known have been Christian men and women who had hardly any education, but oh, how they loved Jesus. And some of the most arrogant and conceited people I've ever known are those of high education, and they have no use for Christ at all. Do you see why all boasting is excluded except Boasting in the Lord. You and I have nothing in ourselves to boast about. I was thinking about, I tell you, I, I, if you've done things in your life, you know, kids can be some of the meanest people on the earth. And I know it because I was, I, I'd had a, I had a streak in me that was just Now, my dad and my mom raised me better than that. But I wish I could go back. If I, I I would get on my knees before somebody and say, I'm sorry for what I said and did as a silly kid. Cruel. I don't have anything to boast about before God. Do you? I don't. The honor of our salvation start to finish belongs to God and to God alone. One of my favorite singers from years ago was Steve Green. Oh, what a voice God put in that man. And he used to sing. The thing I liked about Steve Green was not only his voice, but was the quality of his songs. He sang rich, deep, biblical theology. And he had this song called God and God Alone. And I thought of it as I looked at this text. And part of the song said, God and God Alone created all these things we call our own. From the mighty to the small, the glory in them all is God's. And God's alone. God and God alone reveals the truth of all we call unknown. And all the best and worst of men won't change the master's plan. It's God's 
and God alone. God and God alone is fit to take the universe's throne. Let everything that lives reserve its truest praise for God and God alone. That's what Paul is saying in this passage. Do you remember Jonah and what he said? You know, he's in the belly of the great fish. And right before God spoke to that fish, you know, when it vomited him up onto the dry land, do you remember what it was that, that Jonah finally confessed? He said, salvation is of the Lord. And when he said, salvation of the Lord is of the Lord, only then did God deliver Jonah. And burp, up he came. Onto the dry land. You finally got it, Jonah. Now can you see Jonah miraculously kept alive for three days in the belly of that fish? Can you see him fresh out of that fish? Circling back to Joppa and bragging to his shipmates, Did you guys see how I saved everybody on that ship? Uh, No, Jonah, you didn't do that. They threw you overboard. And a fish came and swallowed you. Salvation belongs to Yahweh, to the Lord. It's entirely of Him. I'm making a point. I hope you're picking it up. It's entirely of Him. It is from Him. It is by Him. It is because of Him. In fact, Paul takes his pen, as it were. He double underlines and puts it in bold. Then he italicizes the point for the Corinthians in verse 30. Now we're at 30. Listen to this. But by His doing. That is God's doing. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Now listen. You gotta look. That's not written on my goatee. That's written on your Bible page. And that's where you gotta look. Okay? Because this is what I'm trying to say. Look at what your Bible says, verse 30. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. The ESV says, and because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. The King James, but of Him are ye in Christ Jesus. The CSB, it is from Him that you are in Christ Jesus. The NIV, it is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus. The RSV, He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. The 2020 NASB, but it is due to Him that you are in Christ Jesus. The NLT, God has united you with Christ Jesus. And the Legacy Standard and the 95 and the 77 NASB, but by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that is, that's ten English translations. Of the Holy Spirit inspired... Holy Spirit guided and therefore error-free writing of the Apostle Paul. Saying the same thing, laying the same stress upon the same fact that no human wisdom, no human strength, no human status can ever put 
a human being in Christ. Worldly wisdom, worldly power, worldly position, worldly abilities are all eliminated. See, the message that we have to proclaim, we, we proclaim it to everybody regardless of, of class or distinction or level of education or whatever it might be. Because none of those things matter. Instead, what's verse 30 say? But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus. His doing. Not your doing. By His doing, by God's elective choice, you are in Christ Jesus. The the Net Bible renders it, He is the reason you have a relationship with Christ Jesus. And the remainder of verse 30, who became to us wisdom from God. That is, by God's doing, we recognize that Christ is wisdom. The world calls Him foolish. The world calls the cross foolish. And we say, no, wait a minute. No, it's not. It's wisdom. He became to us wisdom and righteousness. Our being declared right before God. That's how we're declared right is Christ. And sanctification, our being set apart in holiness and unto holiness. And redemption, our experience of being delivered from sin's penalty and captivity to sin world and the the devil. So that, the final verse, verse 31, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's not boast in the Lord and in me because I just wised up. No. It's most in the Lord because of what He did in entirety. So, so, so this is a compression of uh, the quotation over in Jeremiah chapter 9. Listen to this. Thus says Yahweh, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. See? So Paul here with the Corinthians is saying, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. He just compresses those two verses. In other words, renounce entirely, going around exalting ourselves or any other human being, but instead exalting only the Lord of our salvation. Spurgeon urged boasting in the Lord by owning that you belong to Him and not blushing at being His follower. By by talking about Him on fit occasion. By standing up for Him when He's opposed. By being calm under your troubles. That's how you boast in the Lord. And by having a contempt for the things that others value so much and not being greedy after this world. Because the Lord has saved me. Do you see how Paul then is telling these Corinthians, stop with this I am of Paul, I am of Cephas, I am of Apollos nonsense. Stop. Heal your divisions. 
Let him who boasts, boast only in the Lord. See? Instead of this, the the, the focus is, is upward. All boasting is excluded except in the Lord. Now listen, as we round the corner and head down the back stretch. I know that there are folks who don't like talk like this. They would rather that the Bible didn't say what the Bible plainly says. Now I'm talking about particularly verse 30, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus. And so they, they dislike that so much that they would actually contradict it or ex- deny it or just try to explain it away some way. And, and that, honestly, that is because nothing so strikes at the pride of man as to be told that he's entirely at the mercy of God. In fact, it is a testament to your self-restraint right now that I am not dodging hymn books. Maybe it's not your restraint. Maybe it's that you do understand what the Bible teaches. That we really are entirely as sinful human beings at the mercy of God. If you think I'm wrong, I want you to re-examine the verses. I just, just go back. Ooh, I'll walk through them with you, and you can, you can tell me where I'm wrong. And go read Romans nine fourteen to eighteen, and then get back with me. I'll tell you what we need to do. We need to rethink. If if we think that being at God's mercy is a bad thing, we need to really rethink that. Because you're not more merciful than God, are you? Than the God who so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. You're not more merciful than the God who did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. You're not more merciful than the God incarnate who said what? Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. You're not more merciful. You're you're not more merciful than this God, are you? No. No, I've, I've had the mercy of man I'll take God's mercy any day. Now, I close with this. Back in the early 1900s, during a Billy Sunday evangelistic campaign, a mentally impaired boy came faithfully each night to sing in the choir. Joey was not very bright, said Homer Roadheaver, the well-known song leader for Billy Sunday. But he never missed any of our meetings and wouldn't leave until he shook my hand. Sometimes I was embarrassed by the way he constantly tailed me and I secretly wished he'd just go away. Then one evening a man came to Road Heaver and said, Thank you for being kind to my son, Joey. He's not right mentally. 
but never has he enjoyed anything so much as singing in the choir. He worked hard doing simple chores for people so he could contribute to the collection. Through his pleadings, my wife and five other children came to this evangelistic campaign and have now received Christ. Last night, his 75-year-old grandfather, who had been an atheist all his life, was saved. And tonight, his grandmother also came forward. Now our entire family is converted. You see, when Joey was born and he was mentally impaired, people questioned God's mercy. And they questioned his power and his wisdom. Because look at that poor, impaired little boy. They questioned God, but you know what? Joey didn't. Joey just was Joey. And God worked his mercy in and through Joey for the salvation of his mom his brothers and sisters, his grandfather and his grandmother. You more merciful than God. Come to the cross, my brethren and sisters. Come to the cross again. And as you look up to the wounds of Jesus which bled for you, believe that his mercy endureth forever. Your sins, however innumerable, are cast behind his back. Yea, are thrown into the depths of the sea. All boasting excluded, except in the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we thank You and praise You for the wonder of Jesus Christ, Your Son. How we thank You for His love, for His mercy. Thank You for sending Him into the world for the count-for-nothings. Thank You that You save the wise and the mighty and the noble. But you also save the weak and the foolish so that no flesh may boast before you. We praise you on this Lord's day. And we ask, Father, that you would move so powerfully that the stubbornest, hardest heart would yield to the Savior. Thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.